Can a little dirt be good for us? This is The Big Question. Each month in The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from the University of Calgary. We've all been taught that microbes are unsanitary and bad for us, but it turns out the microbes that live in and on our bodies, called our microbiome, are crucial to our health. In this episode of The Big Question, we look at what we can do to help our microbes grow and thrive instead of bombarding them with sanitizers and antibiotics. My name is Dr. Marie-Claire Arrieta, and I'm an assistant professor in the departments of physiology and pharmacology, and also in pediatrics. I study the gut microbiome. So this is this very large community of microbes that we have living inside of us as well as outside of us, and how it relates with health or disease. In particular, we're really interested in studying how this microbiome develops in children and how that influences the health of children. You wrote a book called Let Them Eat Dirt, Saving Our Children from an Oversanitized World. What do you mean by oversanitized? Well, to explain that one, one has to understand what sanitation and even hygiene is. Um, these concepts have been studied for a long time, many, many decades, so we, we know really what they mean. Um, hygiene or, or sanitation refers to these um, practices, these human practices um, that we do in order to promote health and to prevent disease. So in that context, over-sanitation are practices that go beyond the main um, concept and, and the main goal of sanitation, meaning that we overdo it. We go beyond what we need to. So when we hear of antibacterial soap or hand sanitizer advertising, it kills 99.9% of bacteria. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't cleaner better? Both products kill 99.9% of germs. Kills 99.9% of bacteria. And kill 99.9% of germs. In some context, yes, for sure. In a hospital or in a place where you're trying to really prevent the propagation or the spread of disease, you bet those products in the market have their use. Or, or say if you go camping and you don't, you will not have running water for a number of days and, and you don't have uh, the availability of soap, then one of those gels might be a good idea. But for everyday use and in healthy people, it's not necessary. And, and going back to how much we've studied this before, they, they've actually come to show that the use of antibacterial soap is no more effective in preventing the spread of common diseases than the use of antibacterial soap. So we're not really getting any advantage in, in, in preventing diseases by the use of antibacterial products. So kids being kids, they might eat sand or dirt or anything in between. Is that bad for them if they're eating a fistful of dirt? Uh, depends on depends on what kind of fistful of, of dirt they're eating. In general, it's safe. In general, it's fine. The main reason for that is that rarely does a child uh, wants to continue eating dirt, but it's one of these inevitable aspects of childhood. Children are just inclined to get dirty. And, and I believe it is actually a part of the, the, the ways that we um, learn about our environment is, is by exposing our senses to it um, and 
and, and this includes, of course, taste. Now, I, I don't think, of course, it's bad, but it really depends on where this is happening. Not all dirt is the same and not all dirt has or carries the same degree of, of risk of carrying diseases. If you're out in, in, in the countryside or in a farm or even in you know more secluded areas in cities, then having a child you know, put a, a leaf or dirt in, in their mouth is probably fine, but you don't want that to happen in a metro station or in an airport or in a place that sees a lot of people. And, and the main reason for this is that we people um, and some animals too are the main propagators of disease. And then the, the more concentrated the people are, the, the higher the risk of, of these diseases to, to spread. When you talk about disease and dirt, how does disease get into dirt? Well, dirt is not necessarily a propagator of of um, disease. Normally, people and, and, and other living um, things are propagators of, of infectious diseases. Um, but it can be a carrier of, of them. Let's say if a child is, is in a dirty area in a metro station, for example, where another person was before, um, then by touching or tasting those surfaces, that may increase the chances of touching surfaces that were exposed to someone that was sick. But dirt itself is, is not necessarily dangerous from the infectious point of view. So whether it's a subway station or suburbia, are the microbes we find on surfaces and in dirt dangerous? Uh, potentially, there's always the risk that this risk is going to increase in, in, in very conglomerated areas, or let's say, for example, a hospital that has both conglomeration of people and the fact that there are uh, people that are sick there. What dirt definitely has is microbes. And, and what we're learning is that the vast majority of microbes that we encounter are completely harmless. And even beyond that, some of them have true benefits to the way we develop. So by by preventing this this uh, contact with dirt or dirty surfaces, especially in places where it's not dangerous to do that, we are refraining ourselves and especially our children from exposing the, their, the, themselves uh, to microbes, to those beneficial microbes. How do microbes interact with our body? Well, first and foremost, we are a host to many, many microbes. So many of them uh, don't interact that much with us, but many of them do. In fact, many of them call us home. And and the the collection of those microbes that decide to reside in an aura is is um, in an, on, on us is known as the microbiome. And this is what we study, this community of microbes that we get to live with. What is a microbiome? So a microbiome is a collection of microbes, and this will be living things that cannot be seen with the naked eye. And they come really in all flavors in, in, in terms of kingdoms and, and of, of living organisms. There are bacteria, there's viruses, there's also fungi, uh, there's protists as well as archaea. So there's many different types of microbes. And, and the diversity or the biodiversity of this microbial ecosystem is quite quite large, even comparing it to many other environments in, in on Earth. Um, there's quite a, a lot of them, um, and it's not only their numbers, but what they do. So they're living cells, and they, they carry out a lot of functions. What we're understanding now is that the functions carried out by this microbiome are transferred to us in, in a crosstalk that is fascinating, but we're just beginning to understand, and that we use many of the products that are made 
by the microbiome in order for our body to develop properly. So how important are these microbiomes to our health? They're crucial. They're, they're even beyond important. And we didn't know this until very recently. We had known that, of course, we, we live in this symbiosis of microbes for many decades. And, and for the longest time, we thought that they were beneficial for digestion, for example, and for protecting us from some infectious diseases. But that was about it. It is until the past couple of decades that we understand how much our central physiology relies on those activities by microbes. And and this came about from a series of of breakthroughs where they started comparing the the physiology or the way that the body works in mice that uh, do not have any microbes, also known as germ-free mice, to those uh, from mice that that do have microbes. And and they found that germ-free mice have alterations across all body systems, including their immune system, their metabolism, so the the way they handle energy, as well as their behavior. And so we we now understand that that our own physiology relies a lot on on microbes. So going back to the title of your book, Saving Our Children from an Over-Sanitized World, and we get our kids to stop eating dirt or eating sand when they go to the beach, how does our obsession with cleanliness affect our microbiomes? It is one of the factors, uh, not all of the ones that, that may be detrimental to the development of, of the microbiome, but certainly over-sanitation can be. There's uh, neat studies when, where they have compared children that grow up in farms versus children that grow up in cities, clearly showing not only that they have very different microbes, um, as you would expect, there's a lot more diversity in those, in, in, in those children that, that grow up in farms, but they also have a, a lower risk of developing allergies and asthma for example. They've come to show now that it is indeed those microbes that are only found in farm animal in animal farm environments, that, that the ones that carry this protection towards those diseases. Um, so they're, they're, this change in exposures to microbes because of how cleaner we live in cities is, is one of the factors, but it's certainly not the only one. How are the microbes on a child from a farm different than on a child from the city? There is quite a big difference in, in between both of them, both in, both in terms of the diversity of the microbes, but also the type of, of microbes. In reality, children that are born and raised in farms, they are in closer contact with animals. They are in, clo- in closer contact with the outdoors. And, and those are very important environmental differences when one compares it to a child in the city. So how do our microbiomes develop? And that's a great question, and that's exactly what we're trying to study in, in our group and in other groups here at the University of, of Calgary. We're born just like those mice that I was telling you about. We're born germ-free. But the second that we're born, we start getting colonized, bombarded, if you may, by microbes in, in a series of um, successive uh, processes that, that we're trying to, to understand, but very much Uh, dependent on the environment. So we know, for example, that kids that are born via C-section have a different initial microbiome than kids that are born vaginally. As you can imagine, those that are born vaginally get colonized first with vaginal and fecal microbes because these are the first um, microbes that they're exposed to. Whereas babies that are born via C-section, they would get um, colonized first with skin microbes and even microbes that we would find in, in hospital surfaces or hospital air. Um, then another factor that that helps develop the microbiome, and one that's extremely important, is the type of diet that a human 
eats um, and drinks. And and uh, our microbiome is very, very much driven by our diet. They're, in fact, there to, to eat our food or what's remaining of, of our food after we digest it. So in the, ter- in, in the case of babies, uh, and this is, this is quite interesting, uh, there's important differences in, in microbes depending on the baby drink, if the baby drinks um, breast milk or um, formula, or if the baby drinks a mixture of both, really showing that the microbes really respond to very specific changes in our diet. And then there's other factors also related to diet that shape this microbiome as we develop, which is the, the when we start eating solid foods. So the type of solid foods that, that we eat will have, a, will have a big say in the type of microbes, as well as other environmental exposures where you are, where you grew up, like I mentioned before, whether you grew up in a place that's closer to nature versus a city. What kind of diseases are linked with altered microbiomes? There's really a series of them. And the the more time passes, the more we realize there's, there's new diseases. So I mentioned that we now understand that microbes have a, a big role in the development of our immune system, our metabolism, and also neurobehavioral systems. Because of that, we can now find diseases or pathologies that include those systems. As examples of immune diseases, um, allergies and asthma, as I mentioned before, but also autoimmune diseases diseases of of different types, um, including type 1 diabetes. For the metabolism, different metabolic diseases, including obesity, type 2 diabetes. Um, And in terms of neurobehavioral diseases, these are even newer developments. Um, Anything from autism spectrum disorder, Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, there's, there's quite a number of them. And there's now very interesting development in, in, in the field of cancer as well and how much the microbiome contributes to these diseases. How do our microbiomes interact with our immune system? It does so in many different and, I think, fascinating ways. First, going back to the germ-free experiments, animals that do not have a microbiome, their immune system simply does not work. It doesn't really allow these organisms to react well to infectious um, agents or even it even makes it more prone for them to develop autoimmune conditions. So the immune system is very much reliant on having a microbiome. Now, how does it happen? We're just beginning to learn some of these mechanisms, but it, it, it didn't involves both the products that are produced by the microbiome, as well as the microbes themselves. So we now know that part of the byproducts of the um, fermentation that microbes do of the fiber that we eat have very strong effects in immune cells. And and one of the things that these uh, these products or byproducts do is that it makes immune cells more tolerant. And this may sound a bit counterintuitive that a microbe would make an immune cell more tolerant, but in fact is a a central mechanism in our immune system that prevents um, our immune system from overreacting. And this is very much what happens in a germ-free mouse. We have an overreactive immune system that is very sloppy at distinguishing friend from foe. 
both foes from the outside as well as foes that can develop as an autoimmune disease. So uh, microbes can produce uh, metabolites that do this, but also microbes themselves, and we don't understand very well the exact molecular mechanisms, but some microbes are detected or sensed by immune cells in a way that allows them or give them gives them a past to to live in a in a in a in a more tranquil or or calm environment. Whereas some other microbes have another set of signals that would elicit the opposite. And this all forms part of uh, a very important education period that we rely on. Let's say if you if you give a germ-free animal microbes when the germ-free animal is an adult, you cannot really reprogram those important developmental steps of, of immune education. This really needs to happen early in life. For individuals with compromised immune systems, how does that affect the process? Depending on the type of condition that leads to uh, immune suppression or alterations in the immune systems, some of these are genetic susceptibilities. Some, so some of these are, are carried by, by faulty or defective genes. And, and in that, the microbiome may not have a big of a say, these these um, these humans or other animals will have a, a predisposition to have uh, an altered immune system in ways that the microbiome may not mitigate or change. How is our approach to sanitation different from what it used to be? What changed? Many things changed. I mean, historically, um, the the discovery that microbes cause disease was the the first um, historic event that explained many of these practices. We started removing microbes from hospital environments and from hospital practices, and and those really are are quite uh, breakthroughs in, in the field and, and quite beneficial too, because because the they're they're some of the main reasons why the the risk of infectious disease diseases have uh, plummeted. Um, any, well, all the hygiene measurements, including soap and water, um, that's a, another big change. The discovery of antibiotics and vaccines uh, are a major one, and, and, and those have been amazing, as I mentioned before, at decreasing the, the risk of infectious diseases. As our approach to sanitation has changed, how has this affected our relationship with microbes? This has affected it very strongly and directly. So there are several uh, sanitation-related measurements that have been great breakthroughs in medicine and are responsible to the the, the plummeting of, of the risk of infectious diseases. Anything from the use of soap and water uh, soon after microbes were discovered uh, as, as disease-causing agents to the discovery of vaccines and, and antibiotics. These are measures that have decreased and, and, and in very beneficial ways the risk of, of dangerous diseases. But inadvertently so, this has also have had um, detrimental effects on other microbes because all of these sanitation measurements uh, or measures are not targeted strategies. So what kills a bad microbe, let's say an antibiotic, also kills 
many other microbes that may have beneficial influence in, in the way our health um, develops. And, and because of that, what we see is a concomitant decrease in infectious diseases over the past 70 years with an increase in immune-mediated and metabolic-mediated diseases like the ones we were talking about before. So there is a growing trend of specialized healthcare where someone may look at uh, a patient's genetic code and prescribe treatments based on what they find. Can we treat the microbiomes to treat individuals' diseases? Yes, there's a growing trend of belief in that. Now, the, the, there is also evidence that that may be a, a good approach for certain diseases where there are proven links, proven links, costs and, and consequence between the microbiome and, and the disease. Um, one of them, for example, is an infection by Clostridium difficile, also known as C. diff infection. So this is a really nasty bug that can outgrow um, in the intestine of the some, the elderly or, or other sick uh, people that are sometimes treated with a lot of antibiotics. Um, there's now this very effective treatment that involves the transfer of fecal material from a healthy individual to another one known as a, a fecal transplant or a fecal transfer. And in fact, it's even way, way more effective than the current treatment for C. difficile. Um, there's also trials f of using uh, modifications to the microbiome to improve um, things like autism with very good and promising experimental results. So there's a lot of investment in, in pharma pharmaceutical companies Companies and then biomedical companies to explore the microbiome as, as an alternative to treat some of these diseases or to prevent some of these diseases. So what do we need to change about our current approach? Several things. We now understand that the early lives uh, matter a lot when it comes to microbiome development. We talked about hygiene and how we can relax ourselves in, in terms of allowing our children to expose themselves to to the outdoors a bit more. I'm sure most kids in the city need, need that, and for many reasons, not just because of microbes, but also our diet. There's really no other factor that will impact our microbiome more than diet. And we, in order to promote this diversity in our microbiome, which appears to be beneficial, we have to promote a diversity in diet as well, especially in fiber. So westernized societies are well recognized to have very low amounts and very low diversity of fiber intake. So that's one measure that we can promote and ideally that this can be promoted through childhood. Another big one is the use and overuse of antibiotics to become more judicious when it comes to antibiotic use, both in terms of human use as well as animal use. Those may seem like big cultural changes. How do we get there? They are. Um, I, I agree with you. They are. But I think they're important public health measures. And there have been 
equally big changes in public health before. The use of antibiotics and, and, and the use of vaccines are two big examples of, of them. Now, those continue to be necessary, but I think we, we also need to re-educate uh, the public into understanding that there is a microbiome that rarely no one thinks about. And, and in fact, about 10 years ago, I, I will be one of them as well. So these are very new developments. I think education um, has a really big role, just like kids nowadays are instructed to wash their hands to prevent germs or that antibiotics do not um, cure the flu. Uh, children and adults can be educated or re-educated into how crucial the microbiome is and, and what measures can be done in order to, to benefit this community. Can specialized diets play a role? Yes, depending on the specialized diets. But there are some diets that are quite um, drastic in, in terms of how they may eliminate a group of foods. So, for example, a diet that is very low in carbohydrates has been shown to have an effect in the microbes. So fiber is a carbohydrate, for example. So if you completely de deplete it, you will see a change in that microbiome. And some argue that this is not a beneficial change. So going back to the question we asked at the beginning of the episode, can a little dirt be good for us? You bet. I think so. And especially early in life. What what uh, at the center of this is it's not so much a speck of dirt or a few specks of dirt, but really where this dirt is. We should be outside more. We should be more in contact with our environment. We should be more in contact with uh, the farms that we live close to, the mountains that we live close to, and, and try to un understand that even though most of us are city dwellers, there are some true health benefits associated with exposing ourselves uh, to nature. The, the microbiome is a good example of uh, this crucial community of, of living forms that benefit from, from, from that exposure. Uh, but there's other components to our health that, that also rely on, on that. As individuals, how do we take care of our microbiomes? So um, I think a few ways, and, and science has gotten us up to a point where we can give some advice, but definitely not all of it. So that the, the first one, I would say, is that we try and seek more information because we are not very well educated on microbiology, and, and why should we, right? This is a science that is normally understood in, in, in university, but we're understanding that it's so important that most people should know a little bit about microbes. If you ask the average person what they think about a microbe, they will say they cause disease, they want to wash it off. Uh, and and, and for, for some time, that has been quite a good strategy. But now I think we're, we're smarter than that. We understand that there's both types. And, and, and a great deal can be done if we inform ourselves more about the different types of microbes. In terms of practical things, whenever we're um, in charge of children or educators of children or caretakers of children, um, we should really be stressing the, the, the improvement of their diets and, and really trying to find ways to get children to eat fiber. And this comes not only from, from granola and different grains, but really from fruits and, and vegetables and, and to make that part of their diet in absolutely every meal. It is, it is very important, especially because it's really hard to improve your microbiome once it has been established already after childhood, you can make some improvements, but the 
biggest ones happen during childhood. Um, so trying to foster better better diets in, in children, um, try to be outside more. All children definitely need this, um, as well as, as to try to be more careful with antibiotics and antibacterial products, especially when we don't need them. Any final thoughts? What I would say, uh, and, and again, stressing this issue of trying to let more more about this. Um, I think there's uh, great advantages to to learning more about our microbial world. Um, there's different places and different resources that can be used. We created our own in letthemeatdirt.com. And it's a, it's a good resource to learn more about different aspects of a microbiome, how it impacts our health. There's uh, videos, uh, there's articles, there's uh, news articles as well. So I would recommend people to visit it. This has been The Big Question. We've been talking to Dr. Mary-Claire Arrieta, a professor in pediatrics at the University of Calgary's Cummings School of Medicine, about taking care of our microbes instead of wiping them out. For more stories about research on this topic, visit explore.ucalgary.ca slash brain and gut. The Big Question is a co-production of CJSW and the University of Calgary. In The Big Question, we explore the world's biggest challenges with researchers from across the University of Calgary. The Big Question airs monthly on CJSW. To listen to past episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit cjsw.com or explore.ucalgary.ca. I'm your host, Braden Alexander. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.